All right, good morning. I hope you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this summer we're spending some time in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 48. And uh, Pat, in the Bible reading earlier, read the second half of that. Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 38. Now, there's a, a popular phrase, you may be aware of it, and let me set it up this way. Uh, you might have a friend, and by friend, you'd have that in quotation marks, because they don't treat you like a friend. Maybe they stab you in the back, they gossip about you behind your back, uh, maybe they take your stuff, uh, maybe they're rude to you, they're mean to you. So they're a friend, but really a name only. They're kind of a big old meanie. So what do you say about that person? There's a popular phrase. With friends like these... Who needs enemies? With friends like these, who needs enemies? Yeah. Hey, listen, my friends are so lousy, I don't even need any enemies. I got those in my friends. With friends like these, who needs uh, enemies? And what's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is going to be talking about enemies, and he's sort of flipping that phrase on its head a little bit. What we discover is Jesus is going to be talking about how in the kingdom of God, enemies are treated... And the phrase will actually be reversed. We could say it like this once we get into it, and I'll explain what I mean throughout the message this morning. With enemies like this, well, who need friends? If my enemies are going to be this kind and this generous and this considerate, well, I don't need any other friends because my enemies are so great. We're going to discover in the work of Christ what it looks like when Christ addresses his enemies and he is so kind and gentle and considerate and gracious to his enemies, we would say exactly that. With enemies like this, who needs friends? Now, the problem is with the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount was not written by a Hallmark writer. If Hallmark wrote the Sermon on the Mount, it would be leave you with a good feeling. And the Sermon on the Mount leaves you with a good feeling, a good feeling that you've just been corrected. And so the application we discover from Christ, and we're going to get there eventually, but just so you know where we're going, is he's saying, if I, as your enemy, treated you this way, that you would say, with an enemy like this, I don't need any other friends, what would your enemy say about you? If you would say this about your enemy, who is God, and he has been gracious and kind to you, what about those who would consider you their adversary or their enemy? How would they describe your conduct toward them? What would they say about you? Would they say also, this enemy of mine is so gracious and kind and considerate and merciful that if all my enemies were like this, I wouldn't need any friends? Would they describe us as their adversary the same way we would describe Christ, who in sin is our adversary? I'm actually going to read a verse from Romans 5. You're familiar with it, Romans 5.10. Because some of you are already arguing with me in your head. I know how you work. You're saying, well, I'm not enemies of Jesus. He's my best bud. And that's great. Romans 5.10 says this. For if while we were enemies, what are you on your own to God? To God? Say it. You're his enemy. And you say, no, we weren't really enemies. We just weren't cool. You say, no, you were enemies. You were adversaries in your sin. For while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now, we are reconciled. We shall be saved by His life. So Christ is saying, while you were my enemy, I reconciled you. 
while you were my enemy, I did everything that was needed for you to be reconciled back to me. This is how I treat my enemies. My enemies are given all that is needed that in faith they can be reconciled to me. So here's the title of the message today. It's silly. I don't care. I like silly titles. Best enemy ever. Best enemy ever. And I want you to understand why. Look at verse 38 through 42 of Matthew chapter 5. Best enemy ever. Number one, he forgives and he serves. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 28, he forgives and he serves. Bear with me. Got to find it. Is Matthew before or after Luke? Okay, Matthew 5.38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. If anyone would sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go two. If anyone begs from you, don't refuse him. Give him your money. The best enemy ever, he forgives and he serves. This concept here that we're reading is called lex talionis. Lex talionis. And basically the idea here is reciprocal punishment. The concept of lex talionis or reciprocal punishment was to ensure that there was a limit on the punishment that could be brought against somebody who had done something wrong. If somebody poked your eye out, you couldn't kill them. There's a like kind of punishment for the kind of infraction. The damage you caused, you ought to repay. The, the thing that you have done, you should be punished in a, in a way afforded to and similar to the damage you caused. Uh, what you stole, you owe. This comes from the Old Testament in Leviticus. It, it tells the people of God that if somebody breaks your tooth, you take one of their teeth. They poke your eye out, the, you poke their eye out. They kill your animal, they got to give you an animal or the value of the animal. That there would be reciprocal punishment. So what is the reciprocal punishment that we are owed from God? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden, and he told him to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, said this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. How many trees can he eat from? Every tree of the garden. That's a lot of trees, that's a lot of garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. God is a cheapskate. He won't let us eat from that one tree. What is the reciprocal punishment for rebelling against God? You shall surely die. So there's the punishment. The Apostle Paul repeats it over in Romans. In Romans 5.12, he says it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that? Adam, tree, we just read it. Death through sin. So what happened because Adam sinned? He died. Well, that's his problem, not mine. And so death spread to all men. Oh, man, now it is my problem. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. You're saying, well, I wasn't as bad as Adam. I just steal cable. say, how do you steal cable? You get a friend who's got the code and you type it into your computer, so that's how you do it. I shouldn't have told you that. What's the damage that is owed? What did we do to God? 
we ought to die. Lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, we have done what requires life. What does he do as a result? John 13, 3, listen. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he came from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does Jesus do for his enemies? He takes off his clothing left only in his undergarment and does what the lowest of all the servants ought to have done or at least one of the disciples and those who are at enmity with him who have done what ought to require their life. He kneels down and in humiliation voluntarily washes their feet and he serves them. He doesn't merely command one of the disciples to serve them. He doesn't withdraw from the vast riches of his father's wealth and pay somebody to serve them. He doesn't serve them with his outer garment on and the towel thrown over his shoulder. Why? That's not humiliating enough. In abject humiliation. And you say, well, that's not humiliating. Fine. Today, go home, strip down to your underbritches, and wash your wife's feet. Now it's getting real up in here. And your wife is saying, please, no, that's, that's quite all right. This was intended to communicate, I will serve those who are at war with me in the most humiliating of ways, with the most humiliating of tasks, because that's how I do it. Jesus, the best enemy ever, serves. Luke 23, verse 34. I'm going to start in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Down in verse 32, two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull... They were crucified, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, as one scholar points out, the tense of that verb, he said, is a tense that would indicate he prayed this on an ongoing basis. Likely, he prayed this prayer over and over and over and over again as he was being crucified. It wasn't a one-time, I'll forgive him. Perhaps we could imagine with every hammer blow, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. The best enemy ever because we owed the reciprocal punishment of our death and what he did is he doesn't only serve us, but he also, in the midst of receiving from us 
the, penal, the penalty that we ought to have received, he offers on an ongoing basis, Father, forgive him. There is no grudge. There is only humble service. Because of our sin, we are his enemy. Because of our sin, he is our enemy. With enemies like this, who else could you possibly meet? Best enemy ever. Luke chapter 10. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. This would have been a Jewish man, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and they left him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, who would have been a Jew also, was going down that road, and when he saw the other Jewish man, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, who obviously also would have been Jewish, when he came to that place, he saw his brother, the Jewish man, on the ground, stripped nearly dead, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, what is the relationship between Samaritans and Jewish men? Enemies. The Samaritan owed him a debt of revenge and anger for mistreatment and misjustice. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds and uh, poured oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you might spend, when, when I get back, I'll give you all the money you, you spent. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and they couldn't even bring themselves to say the word Samaritan? The one who was nice. The best enemy ever is Christ because he forgives and serves. And then he says to us in this parable of the good Samaritan, be that way to your enemies. Because, not because it's nice and it's religious and that's what good people do, be this way to your enemies because this is the way Jesus is to his enemies. This is what Jesus looks like in the heart of his followers. Jesus is compassionate to his enemies. Paul says it this way over in Romans chapter 12. It's a verse you're familiar with. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How often should you avenge yourself? Never. Leave it to the wrath of God. He's better at it. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That means you just might spark something in his conscience. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Okay, look back again at Matthew, 30, Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. You ask this question as Jesus says this, turn the cheek, give your coat, walk the extra mile, give away your money. Why in the world would we do all these things? Why in the world would, when somebody strikes me, uh, would I turn my other cheek and say, you missed one? 
Why in the other world, when a Roman soldier would command me, which they could, to carry my goods for them at least one mile, I would say, you know what? I'm just getting warmed up. Let's do another. Why in the world, when somebody wants to take away my article of clothing, I would give them the more expensive one? Why in the world would I give to the beggar who at that time, uh, they were broke and there was no social services, they would die of starvation, and the assumption was, if you were begging for money, it's because you have been cursed by God. And so you'd never give to a beggar because they've been cursed by God. That's between them and God. Why would we do all of these things? Because these are all the things he did unto us as his enemies. He turned his cheek and received another. He has walked with us more than one mile, more than two miles. He has given us the shirt off his back, hasn't he? And when we are hungry, we have been fed. The best enemy ever. Why? He forgives and he serves. All right, let's look at verses 43 through 48. The best enemy ever, number two, he loves and he prays. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a common phrase probably at the time. It's not in the Bible. Probably a popular phrase, but I say to you, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors love those who love them? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, should be perfect, just like God. Best enemy ever. He loves and he prays. We have to understand what Jesus is saying about this attitude towards enemies, loving them and praying them. He is not saying, you know what, this is how the world should be. People should love and pray for each other no matter what if they're getting along. What he is saying is this. This isn't the way it is. This is never the way it's going to be because the world is full of sinful people. I don't know if you've noticed that. So when you do this, you will always be weird. We're not trying here. He is not convincing us that somehow through being nice to the people around us, they're suddenly going to be nice. What he's saying is, be nice to the people around you, love them and pray for them. Why? Because that's what weird Jesus people do. And you're thinking, well, what if, what if they take advantage of me? And Jesus says, why do you think it's if? Well, what if I loan them my shade cover and they destroy it? Okay, that's, now it's getting too... I didn't want to bring the, brought the application too soon. Wait for it, okay. He loves and he prays and he calls us to look at those with whom we have enmity and say, you know what? I'm going to show affection towards them. I'm going to pray all of my dreams, all of my hopes, all of my desires, not for me, but for that jerk at work. Well, God, if you were to give me everything I wanted, I have a lot more emotional energy to express those same things. God says, no, no, no. I want you to pray all of your hopes for them. And then when I give it to them, I want you to throw them a party. Two friends wanted to go for a hike. One buddy went up to his other buddy. He said, hey, you want to go for a hike? And his friend said, yeah, sure, let's go. Okay, so they meet up. The guy who had initiated the idea shows up, and he's got a backpack on. He's got a sleeping bag on it, got a tent in it, got a bunch of food, got some gear, going to handle some different kinds of weather. The other buddy showed up with nothing. 
The guy with the pack said, what are you doing? He said, what are you? we're going on a hike. I thought we were going to go to the park and walk around for a couple hours. The guy said, no, no, no. We're going for a hike. We're going to be gone all weekend. Going up into the woods. We're going to look for the Sasquatch and whatnot. He said, why would you want to do that? He said, it sounds like fun. You can't go hiking in the woods for three days unless you're very, very fortunate with the weather without the proper equipment. And what Jesus is saying here is I want you to do something that you cannot do on your own. He is not merely calling you to be polite and nice and kind and have good thoughts or whatever to the people you know and love. He's not merely asking you not to cause problems with the people that are a problem in your life. He's saying, I want to call you to something you do not have the ability to do And in order to do this, love your enemies and pray for your enemies, it is going to require that you receive help. You can't go on your own without the proper equipment. You, in fact, will need the work of God himself in your heart in order to show your love to those who have shown nothing but strife and enmity toward you. He is not calling for you just to be the nicest you can be to the one who has shown you nothing but ill will. He's asking you to show God's love itself to the one who has done nothing but cause you harm. He's asking and calling us for something that we cannot do. So if you say, oh, I'm just going to muster up the strength and be polite, you've missed the point. He's saying, no, I want you to feel love for them. Man, I love that guy. Yeah, but I want that guy dead. So maybe you're going to need a miracle in your heart. Maybe you're going to need to work of Christ himself in your heart. He has called us to do something that can only be accomplished by him and through him in us. Do you think he can do that? Well, he better be able to do that because that's what he did for us. He came and he offered forgiveness and he offered love and prayer for us who had offered nothing to him except for enmity and strife and conflict. Look at verse 45 of Matthew 5. Do these things so that you may be sons of your father. What he's saying is if you're in me... You're going to act like me and love your enemies and pray for them. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What does he do? The good and the bad all get sun. The good and the bad all get rain. Now, listen, I know you're already qualifying this in your head. That's the law of physics, man. What's God going to do? Oh, great, the evil people got sun again. You think God is somehow bound by the laws of physics? Has God ever throughout Scripture kept rain from bad people? Yes. He's also kept rain from good people, just so you know. Has God ever, in the Bible, kept light from some people and not from others? Yes. Plagues in Egypt. Egypt was plunged into darkness and Israel was in the sunlight. What does this mean when he says, I put the sun and the rain on the good and the unrighteous, or the, yeah, the, the good and the evil alike? God is not in his heart going, oh, those bad people. I wish so much I didn't have to give them sunlight. He is putting light on the good and the evil alike and saying, man, I love giving sunlight. The evil guy, he spent all night doing nothing but evil, and you can figure out what that is. He wakes up in the morning, and the sun pops up over the sun, uh, over the horizon and hits his face. And you know that warm feeling you get? The air is cold, but the sun is hitting you and it's warm. You know what I'm talking about? Does that make you feel good? If it doesn't, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. 
I mean that in the nicest way, because... And whether that person is good or evil makes no difference to God. He's going, man, I am so glad he is enjoying my sunshine. And when the rain comes and there's a great crop for the evil farmer, does God go, man, I wish that guy was starving to death? No, he goes, look, that guy took my rain and he took my soil. Look at that, he's got a whole bunch of food. God does not begrudgingly provide. He loves to provide because that's what he's like. Even on those who would be his enemy. He loves and he prays. How would we treat those that we have a problem with? How would we treat those who get sideways with us? I hope they never see the sun again, we might pray. Jesus, in particular, does a lot of things for us. Hebrews chapter 7, we discover something interesting. This is describing Jesus. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. How long is he our priest? Permanently. How many priests do you need at church? None. You got one. You're not gonna, there's no better one. Just clarify in case we're, I'm not your priest. Nobody in this church is your priest. You got one priest. Who is it? Do you need another one? He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? If you have, you will go to heaven someday. Why? Because God can't get out of it, right? Oh, if he could, he would. Oh, my lands. Are you kidding me? You got saved at some crusade, camp, school, parents sitting on your bed. You got saved. The angels rejoiced, and all of heaven has spent the rest of time since then regretting their decision. If I, if, if I weren't faithful, God, I'd kick this guy out so fast you wouldn't believe it. What does this say? That Jesus, who is a priest forever, spends all of his time ensuring that all of your sin is brought to God and God is told again, not that he needs to be reminded, paid for that on the cross, he's still in. The assumption is when you get saved, the certainty of you going to heaven will require Jesus faithfully interceding for you. He has no regrets over who he saves. And he will intercede for all that have put faith in him. He lives forever making intercession for us, praying over and over and over again. You get up in the morning and remember the big, ugly sin you committed yesterday. He interceded for that. And the 4,000 other ones you're not even paying attention to. He said, well, no, I just got the big one. Really? Okay. It doesn't say he just needs to intercede for you Mondays 10 to 11. He intercedes always, over and over and over again. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? 
Who can be against us? No one. You've got a priest who lives forever, creator of the universe, who's interceding for us over and over again. Who can stop that? Can you stop it? No. Can the devil stop it? Can somebody you don't like stop it? No. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed he is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am convinced that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He intercedes and he prays, and there is nothing that we can do that can separate us from his love. Absolutely nothing. Best enemy ever. Why in the world would we love and pray for those who are difficult to love and pray for? Because he does that for us over and over and over again. In Ephesians, we won't get into it for the sake of time. In Ephesians 4, we had talked about walking a worthy, walking a manner worthy of the calling we have in Christ Jesus. And he said this, put off our old self and put on Christ. What he's saying is this, in Christ, receiving forgiveness, receiving his service, receiving his love and his prayer, put Christ on and walk in a manner that is like Jesus. Meaning we pray for those that are our enemies, we serve them, we love them, we forgive them. He is saying this, he has saved us not to live any old way we want. He has saved us that we might live in the same way that he has lived for us. We could put it this way, there is no version of salvation in Christ that results in you getting to do whatever you want. The whole point of our salvation in Christ is for us to be like who? Jesus. That's the whole point. We could say it another way. There is no version of our salvation where we get to be God. The whole point is peace with God, and having peace with God is recognizing that He is God and I am not. Romans 6 says it this way. I'll just read it briefly. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. God is calling us to freedom from sin, but not freedom to be God, freedom to worship God as slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. So what he is saying is this, he's the best enemy ever, he forgives us, he serves us, he loves us, and he prays for us, but he calls for us to live in him in the same way, to be a slave, that is, serve him the way he has served us. And you're asking yourselves, how in the world am I supposed to do that? Look at verse 27 of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 27, we're going backwards now. 
best enemy ever. The question will be as we look at three areas of life, lust, divorce, and promises. The question is, is he enough? Is he enough? Look at verse 27. I'll read it quickly. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Very politically correct of Jesus to say. Is Jesus enough? He is saying about the desires of our heart, he says, look, is your heart moving and yearning towards another with desire? The question becomes not merely, are you going to commit adultery with that intent in your heart? But the question is primarily, do you want Christ or do you want to feed the desires of your own heart? Do you want Christ or do you want your desires and your passions? And he draws a contrast. He says, listen, it's not primarily just don't commit adultery. He's saying, do you desire uh, the kingdom of God and Christ the king of the kingdom to such a degree that you will do whatever it takes to run from what we used to be enslaved to, to run to him who is our priest and our new master? He spends more time about taking off our hands and cutting out our eye than he does about avoiding adultery because his point is, the question is not how close can you get to it without being naughty. The question he's saying is how far away can you get? Say you meet somebody and you're friends. I don't know, think of your favorite friend. Don't tell them now because your other friends might see. And you go up to him and say, hey, we're friends. We've been friends for a while. So I just wanted to know something. What's the bare minimum thing I have to do that we can still be friends? Say, for example, I just text you once a month, what's up? Are we good? Okay, I tell you what. How about one text, what's up a month, and then one voicemail on the opposite two weeks? Is, are we still friends? I mean, wouldn't you be offended by that? And that's what Jesus said. People are asking, well, what's the, what's the most I can do and still be cool with God? And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? Flee from that which is unrighteous because you want to flee to the one who has made you righteous. If someone approached you this way as a friend and said, what's the bare minimum I have to do to be your friend? You'd say, I don't want to be your friend. And when we say, how close to sin can we get without actually sinning, Jesus is saying, I think you've missed the point here. Do you want your sin or do you want the one who has saved you from it? And then in very gruesome details, he says, I want your hearts fully devoted to me that you're not questioning what's right and wrong. You're saying, how can I be so fully devoted to Christ? That's all I seek. And you say, well, that sounds a little extreme. Did you read it? It's pretty extreme. He is saying not primarily just avoid adultery. He is saying, are you going to seek me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind? Look at verse 31 and 32. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, 
Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We must keep in mind the context of this. He's talking to the Pharisees who believed in marriages of convenience. They didn't want to commit adultery, so they would marry a woman so that uh, they could sleep with her. Then when they got bored with her, they would cast her aside. And the law required that they issue a certificate of divorce so she wouldn't starve to death. How kind of this guy. I almost said moron. And Jesus is saying here, and the first thing we all ask, well, what's Jesus' point about divorce? Not the point. His whole point is, why are you taking lightly this covenant that throughout all of biblical history has been that one covenant that was intended to communicate the love of God to his people? How could you take lightly this covenant, which is not about two people getting married and living happily ever after. It's about two people communicating how much God loves his people. From Genesis in the Garden of Eden, it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he's like God. He's made in his image, and God is not alone. It's not so man would have something to do. It's because man is made in the image of God, and he needed someone with him in relationship because God lives in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What about Song of Solomon? You think Song of Solomon is the Bible just so there's one rated R section of the Bible and it seems legit? No, it's intended to communicate the love of God in marriage that beautifully portrays the joy that God has in seeking out his people. God is not seeking us out because he has nothing else to do and he has no other options. He is seeking us out the way a groom seeks out his bride, with passion and love. What about Hosea? God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. Did God tell Hosea to marry a prostitute because God thought it would be like reality TV from heaven? Oh, this will be fun to watch. What a silly thing. No, he wanted to illustrate through Hosea's marriage what it's like for God to pursue us. Always unfaithful, and yet he pursues over and over again. How does the Bible end? In a wedding supper. The lamb and his bride finally unified for all of time. And Jesus comes knowing this whole story, and he says, and you would just cast your wife aside because you want to upgrade? Because your trophy wife has put on a couple of years, it's time to get a younger model? You've completely misunderstood what marriage means. Jesus here is not naive about the complexities of real life and real marriage and the difficulties we face in broken relationships, but he is honest to those people who would take it lightly. So here's the problem. The people in real tough spots, in real brokenness situations, in marriages that blow up, and you know, all of us know tons of them, they read this passage and freak out. The people he was talking to read this passage and don't care. That's who this is written to. The ones casting aside wives like there were so much livestock. That's exactly what was going on at the time. Your marriage isn't about you, Jesus is saying, and guess what? Your salvation isn't about you either. It's about the Savior finally bringing us to himself. The question is, is he enough? Is he enough that we would value those that he has brought into our lives? Finally, oaths. 
oaths. That's a hard word to say, oaths, promises. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, it's not insulting you if you're retired, it's talking about people in history, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black or grow back. It's not in there. It's assumed. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from the devil. When he says that at the end, let your yes be yes, he's saying this. Let what you say happen, and what you say won't happen, not happen. Let what comes out of your mouth be the truth of what is going to happen. This is echoed also in James 5.12, where James says, There is no greater evil than one whose yes is not yes and no is not no. He is calling us to keep our promises, but more than that, listen, God is calling us to keep costly promises. He's calling us to keep our promises to Him and others, even when the situation has changed, and now the cost to keep that promise is much more than we would have thought. Now the promise we thought would pay off is no longer going to pay off, and so we want out of our promise, and God is saying, that's not how we roll. We keep our promise regardless of the cost. Jesus says to Adam in Genesis 3, my seed will come through her and she, he will crush the serpent's head. God in Genesis 3 makes a promise to mankind that he will redeem us. At what cost? His own life. And he keeps that promise. Many thousands of years later, Jesus comes and keeps that promise. All of prophecy in the Bible is God telling us a Redeemer is going to come, and God speaks throughout all of Old Testament history to say the Messiah is coming, and when God acts in sending Christ, all His promises are fulfilled. The way the people of that time were doing it is they were making promises and assuming that the spiritual act of their life was making a promise. You've heard of the campfire stick thing, right? You go to camp. A guy gets up and gives a moving speech. We might include a Bible verse or two. A story about how when he was younger, he got over drugs and whatever else. And then he says, everybody gets a stick, and you're going to confess your sin and throw your stick in the fire. Who's done this? And it's good. I'm not, now you're afraid to raise your hand. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Nothing spiritual has happened yet. Where does the spiritual victory occur? Not when the stick goes in the fire. Plenty of fires have been burned with plenty of sticks before. The spiritual victory happens when God moves in us to say no to that which we said no to. When our oaths are fulfilled is when something spiritual happens. So Jesus says, don't make promises. How about this? Just do right. How about this? Instead of making your spiritual life merely uh, filling the air with your empty promises, how about, how about this? Keep your mouth shut and follow the Lord faithfully the way he has faithfully brought you to him. Research was done on people who pledge donations to nonprofits. You get these throughout the year, especially in December. They want us to donate money to them, especially because you get the tax write-off, right? December, your mailbox is full of them. And what you do is you write in a pledge. Now, as it turns out, a number of people don't fulfill their pledge. You would expect this. In fact, charities make plans for this. If they want to raise a certain amount of money 
and they're going to do it through pledges. They plan to get pledges for more than the amount they need because they know a certain number of people will not fulfill their pledge. What's the number one reason people don't fulfill their pledge? They run into financial problems they didn't anticipate. Things change, and now this pledge before was going to cost me this much, but that amount of money nowadays is, well, that's more. Some of us came to Christ, and we were pretty stoked because Christ saves sinners, rightfully so, and now we've grown up in the Lord a little bit, and we've matured in the Lord a little bit, and we said, whoa, howdy. I listened to Joel Osteen, and he told me when I came to Christ, my teeth would be white. Still, no, that's a sin for me. I envy that dude's white teeth. I've never seen teeth that straight. It's the gift of white teeth. I, he told me, if I come to him, I'm going to get healed, I'm not going to be sick anymore. Poverty is going to be cast aside. No more problems. All my relationships will be made whole. Then you came to Christ, and what happened? Sicker than you ever been, broker than you ever been, nobody wants to talk to you. And you call up Joel, he's not going to answer his phone. Romans 5. This is the last verse I'm going to read. If I can find it. Romans 5. Through Christ, we have received access by faith into the presence of God himself. But not only that, we rejoice in our, here it comes, you ready? Sufferings. We have been granted access to the presence of God by Christ himself, and we rejoice now in our sufferings. Anybody want hope in their Christian life? I'm about to read how to get it. You ready? Some of you are hopeless, and I'm about to read how to get it. The Bible says it. The Bible's true. I believe it. Our suffering produces endurance. I'm sorry, what? Your suffering produces what? Prayers for suffering to stop mostly, but it also produces endurance. Endurance then produces what? Character. And you pray to God, God, give me character so I can endure suffering. He says, no, I'm going to give you suffering so you can endure to receive character. And you say, God, this is not the way I would do it. He says, I know, you mess everything up. <laughs> he gives us suffering. We receive endurance. Endurance then produces character. And out of character, we, we receive what? Hope comes from the work God is doing in and through you, through your suffering and through your endurance and the character that grows out of it. And pretty soon nothing has changed. And you say, you know what? I see hope. Hope does not put us to shame because love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The question must remain, if you want to endure suffering and have character and have hope, the question you must answer, is he enough? Is he enough to walk away from lust, to walk away from a light view on the covenant, especially of marriage and our love, enough to keep our promise to him and others even when the cost is more than we could imagine? Is he enough to flee sin at all costs and run to him? Think of that one sin, that one ugly, particularly heinous one that you just can't get over. If, you, if one thing in your life could change and you wouldn't do that anymore, would you be willing to do it? If he's the best 
enemy ever, is he enough for you to say, you know what, I'm going to do it. Cut the TV off, cut the internet off. I no longer hang out with that guy. I no longer go to that place. What is it? Are you going to flee to sin, from sin, or are you going to keep asking God, how close can I get and not be naughty? It's a fair question. Is Jesus enough in your marriage to see that it's more about him than our own satisfaction? You're discontented with your spouse. Things haven't worked out. It turns out the person you married 20 years ago is not the person you live with. Duh. And you sit at home and mope about how hard your marriage is. Fine. Is he enough to value that person? See, that's the problem. We've been going over enemies in this. Unfortunately, for many of us, that person lives with us. Are we going to love them, forgive them, pray for them? Is Jesus enough that we can finally see marriage as more about him than our own satisfaction? Finally, is Jesus enough that we're willing to honor our promise to him because of the promise he made to us regardless of what it costs? And there are Christians all over the world who are making that decision and it is costing them their lives. By God's grace, we're not there today. But the question is, is he enough that if we lost everything, we would still have everything because we have him? Or are you hedging your bets? What sin? What cost? What is it in our life that we say, well, I want Jesus, but I also must have this. I want Jesus, but I also want a successful career. I want Jesus, but I also want kids who are perfect. I don't know how that works. I want Jesus, but I want the entire world geared to my frequency. Okay. Jesus is simply asking, what if all you had was Jesus? Is that enough? And if it's not, he's saying you're always going to be struggling. 